in the context, they're having a discussion, Christian and faithful. Well, neighbor faithful, said Christian, let us leave him talk of things that more immediately concern ourselves. So I don't think him means talkative because that's next. Tell me now, what have you met with in the ways you came? For I know you have met with some things or else it may be writ for a wonder. And faithful said, I escaped a slough that I perceived you fell into and got up to the gate without that danger. Only I met with one whose name was Wanton. That's the one I want to focus on. A woman named Wanton who had liked to have done me a mischief. Krishna said, it was well you escaped her net. Joseph was hard put to it by her, and he escaped her as you did, but it had liked to have cost him his life. Genesis 39, 11 to 13. But what did she do to you? Faithful then answered, you cannot think but that you know something. What a flattering tongue she had. She lay at me hard to turn aside with her promising me all manner of content. Christian, nay, she did not promise you the content of a good conscience, faithful said. You know what I mean, all carnal and fleshly content. Christian said, thank God you have escaped her. The abhorred of the Lord shall fall into her ditch. Psalm 22, verse 14. And this really caught my eye, and this is what I want to open up all this for just this sentence. Faithful said, Nay, I do not know whether I did wholly escape her or not. Physically, he did. But when you were tempted like that, let's be honest, men, sometimes the fantasy comes after the fact and you feel like you didn't totally escape her. So that's where I believe he is coming from. Why, said Christian, I suppose you did not consent to her desires. No, Not to defile myself, for I remembered an old writing that I had seen, which said, Her steps take hold on hell. So I shut my eyes, because I would not be bewitched with her looks. Then she railed on me, and I went my way. So I'm just going to give you a couple of examples of really, really helpful writings on this. These are just examples, because we want to spend the time in the application saying something that gives us direction, that gives us hope, and that should really be at the foundation of how we persevere and how we escape temptations. George Lawson, he wrote a Life of Joseph, which I brought to Joe Wilson's attention, wrote a book, a commentary on Proverbs, and the two commentaries, the commentary from the 19th century you hear of most is Charles Bridges, but this really ministers to me. This is 1821. You talk about not holding any punches. Listen to what he says. Exposition of Proverbs 5, 6. And I posted this, for example, when I discovered the questionable end of Robbie Zacharias. Okay. When men enter into a course, course of sin, they have no intention to be damned. They only intend to indulge themselves in the pleasures of sin for a time and then return to the paths of life. Millions of souls have been seduced to everlasting destruction by this one temptation of the old serpent. You shall not die, although you eat. Grace is free, and there is abundance of time to repent. The wise man, Solomon, gives what may repel this temptation by letting us know how foolish it is for men to flatter themselves with the hope that they shall be truly disposed and enabled to repent of this sin. And the one thing about if a person has allowed himself in a state of spiritual declension that is rooted in this sin, the emphasis is it's only by the grace of God that you are disposed exposed and enabled to repent of this sin. Her ways, a foolish woman, a woman of folly, are movable, that you cannot know them. She can form her mode of behavior into a hundred different shapes to entangle the heart of the lover. She spreads a thousand snares, and if you escape one of them, you will find yourself held fast by another. She knows well how to suit her words and behavior to your present humor. To lull the 
conscience asleep and to spread before your eyes such a mist, it shall prevent you from being able to descry the paths of life. If you ever think of the danger of your course and feel the necessity of change in it, she will urge you to spend a little time longer in the pleasures of sin, end quote. The other day I was uh, narrating a sermon by Charles Spurgeon, and if it comes out of the new Park Street pulpit, the first six volumes of the 63 volumes, that means that he was at New Park Street Church. He wasn't yet at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Well, why is that interesting? Because he wasn't even 25 years old, and I'd guess about, this is coming from a 21-year-old preacher, the, the genius of this man, and grabbing your attention and pressing your conscience. He said, it's called Satan's Banquet, and he uses the illustration of four different tables, and the devil gives you the good wine at first and withholds the bad wine until later, and this is what he's building on. The fourth table is set in a very secluded corner, in a very private part of Satan's palace. There is a table set for secret sinners, and here the old rule is observed at that table in a room well darkened. I see a young man sitting today, and Satan is a servitor, stepping in so noiselessly that no one would hear him. He brings in the first cup. Oh, how sweet it is. It is a cup of secret sin. Stolen waters are sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. How sweet that morsel eaten all alone. Was there ever one that rolled so delicately under the tongue? You know, that's a reference to rolling a sweet morsel under the tongue. That is the first. After that, he brings in another, the wine of an unquiet conscience. A man's eyes are open and he says, what have I done? What have I been doing? Ah, cries this Aiken, the first cup you brought me, I saw sparkling in that wedge of gold in a goodly Babylonish garment. And I thought, oh, I must have that. But now my thought is, what shall I do to bide this? Where shall I put it? I must dig. Yes, I must dig deep as hell before I shall be able to hide it. For sure enough, it will be discovered. End quote. So laying the foundation still. We need to answer the question, what is temptation? And this is from John Owen's Collected Works, Volume 6, of Temptation. And if you don't, and I've mentioned this before when I was teaching on John Owen's Practical Works, if you read nothing else out of there, Chapter 3 is just, uh, it's a grenade, it's a bomb. What is it to enter into it? This is not merely to be tempted. It is impossible that we should be so freed from temptation as not to be at all tempted. While Satan continues in his power and malice, whilst the world and lust are in being, we shall be tempted. Christ, as one, was made like unto us that he might be tempted, and we are tempted that we may be made like unto Christ. Temptation in general is comprehensive of our whole warfare. As our Savior calls the time of his ministry, the time of of his temptations, Luke 22, verse 28. We have no promise that we shall not be tempted at all, nor to pray for an absolute freedom from temptations, because we have no such promise of being heard therein. The direction we have for our prayers us lead us not into temptation, Matthew 6, 13. It is entering into temptation that we are to pray against. We may be tempted yet not enter into temptation. So that number two, something more is intended by this expression than the ordinary work of Satan and our own lusts, which will be sure to tempt us every day. There is something signal in this entering into temptation that is not the saint's every day's work. It is something that befalls him peculiarly in reference to seduction and to sin on one account or other by the way of allurement or through being frightened into it. Number three, it is not to be conquered by a temptation to fall down under it, to commit the sin or the evil that we are tempted to do or to omit the duties that we are 
opposed. A man may enter into temptation and yet not fall under temptation. God can make a way for a man to escape when he is in. He can break the snare, tread down Satan, and make the soul more than a conqueror, though it is entered into temptation. Christ entered into it, but was not in the least foiled by it. But, number four, It is, as the apostle expresses it, to fall into temptation as a man falls into a pit or deep place where are gins or snares, wherewith he is entangled. The man is not presently killed and destroyed, but he is entangled and detained. He knows not how to get free or be at liberty. And I just narrated this again this week. Jonathan Edwards, and this is his sermon on Joseph's temptation, sermon is called Temptation and Deliverance. Prudent sense of our own weakness and exposedness to yield to temptation obliges us to avoid that which leads or exposes to sin. Whoever knows himself and is sensible how weak he is and his constant exposedness to run into sin, how full of corruption his heart is, which like fuel is ready to catch fire and bring destruction upon him. How much he has in him to incline him to sin and how able he is to stand of himself. Who is sensible of this and has any regard of his duty? Will he not be very watchful against everything that may lead and expose to sin? On this account, Christ directed us, Matthew 26, 41, to watch and pray lest we enter into temptation. The reason is added, the flesh is weak. He who in confidence of his own strength, boldly runs a venture of sinning. By going into temptation, manifests great presumption and a sottish insensibility of his own weakness. He that trusts in his own heart is a fool. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six. The wisest and strongest and some of the most holy men in the world have been overthrown by such means. So was David. So was Solomon. His wives turned away his heart. If such persons so eminent for holiness were this way led into sin, surely it should be a warning to us. Let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. But some may be ready to inquire, how shall we know what things do lead and expose to sin? Let a man do what he will. He cannot avoid sinning as long as he has such a corrupt heart within him. And there is nothing a man can do, but he may find some temptation in it. And though it be true that a man ought to avoid those things that lead and expose to sin, and that those things which have a special tendency to expose men to sin are what we ought to shun as much as in us lies. Yet, how shall we judge and determine what things have a natural tendency to sin or especially lead us to it? I would answer in some particulars, and this is still Jonathan Edwards, which are plain and easy and which cannot be denied without the greatest absurdity. One, that which borders on those sins to which the lusts of men's hearts strongly incline them is of this sort. Men come into the world with many strong and violent lusts in their hearts and are exceeding prone of themselves to transgress even in the safest circumstances in which they can be placed. And surely so much the nearer they are to that sin to which they are naturally strongly inclined, so much the more are they exposed. If any of us who are parents should see our children near the brink of some deep pit or close by the edge of the precipice of a high mountain, And not only so, but the ground upon which the child stood, slippery and steeply descending directly toward the precipice. Should we not reckon a child exposed in such a case? Should we not be in haste to remove the child from its very dangerous situation? So I have a number of books on my Kindle and that, and I hadn't been diligently to read them. You know, I, they're good. They're good books. Randy Alcorn, Tim Challies, and one other. And they are, they're helpful warnings, but I want to come at this from a different direction. And Tim Challies has a book, and I just download the sample. I don't want to pay $6 for every book I just want to look at. But the book is called Detoxing from Pornography. And let let me just quote him. You already know you need to change. Few Christian men indulge in pornography without realizing they need to quit. It doesn't really say, why do we need to quit? And that's what I want to get into. Every Christian guy who looks at porn wants to stop, but many of us want to stop 
just a little bit less than we want to keep going. The problem isn't knowledge, it's desire and ability. And so sin prevails. Here's a promise. You will never stop until you begin to see the monstrous nature of the sin you are committing. You will never stop until the sin is more horrifying to you than the commission of the sin is enjoyable. You will need to hate that sin before you can find freedom from it. That means you need more grace. You need to cry out to be changed so you do see the monstrous nature of the sin, and then you need to act in faith that God will meet you with grace as you seek to cut off the pornography and begin the reset. Kelly's detoxing from porn addiction. So... Getting back to the warning of Owen before I get into the application, he's talking about men not guarding themselves against temptation. And nothing does the folly of the hearts of men show itself more openly in the days wherein we live than in this cursed boldness after so many warnings from God and so many sad experiences every day under their eyes of running into and putting themselves upon temptation. Any society, any company, any conditions of outward advantages without once weighing what their strength is. What is my strength? That's why you got to read chapter 3 of this book. He says you don't have strength in yourself. And any supposition that you do have strength in yourself to battle this is already part of your weakness. You have to watch and pray. You have to start with watch and pray. Owen says... Though they go over the dead and the slain that in those ways and past, but even now fell down before them, yet they will go on without regard or trembling. At this door are gone out hundreds, hundred thousands of professors within a few years. Consider the particular ways and means that such a heart has or can use to safeguard itself in the hour of temptation. If their insufficiency to that purpose will quickly appear, I shall instance in some few only first. So, you're about to be tempted. Want to reason with yourself. You want to put up some safeguard. You want to put up some hedges. And he shows you why you can't even depend on any of these things apart from watching in prayer. First, you'll say, well, the love and honor in the world, <laughs> reputation and esteem in the church obtained by former profession and walking is one of the heart's own weapons to defend itself in the hour of temptation. Shall such a one as I fly? I, who have such, had such a reputation in the church of God, shall I now lose it by giving way to this lust? to this temptation. And of course, he goes on for a couple of paragraphs, but he says, in the hour of temptation, if the temptation has gotten into your affections and in your inclination, that argument in and of itself isn't going to be enough. And where I felt so convicted and where I felt such a necessity to communicate this is because a former church that Michael and I were a part of really has been so wrecked by one after another falling into sexual sin and pornography. In one case, the wife stood by the husband. In the other case, they have separated and I believe divorced. But this isn't a fiction. And your reputation and esteem in the church, and it may be people who are vocal in the prayer meeting and they have such a conviction and they suppose their reputation and the embarrassment that would come would keep them from this sin. And Owen says, no, your strength has to come from without. Secondly, there is on the other side the consideration of shame, reproach, loss, and the like. This also men may put their trust in as a defense against temptations and do not fear but to be safeguarded and preserved by it. They would not for the world bring that shame and reproach upon themselves that such and such miscarriages are attended with. But we see by experience how easily this cord is broken when once a heart begins to be entangled. This cord is broken. Back to Samuel when he was tied with what they call it, withs. And he was able to break right through it. Thirdly, they have yet that which outweighs these lesser considerations, namely that they will not wound their own consciences and disturb their peace and bring themselves in danger of hellfire. This surely, if anything, will preserve men in the hour of temptation. They will not lavish away their peace nor venture their souls by running on God in the thick bosses of its buckler. What can be of more efficacy and prevalency? I confess this is of great importance. 
And oh, that it were more pondered than it is, and that we laid more weight upon the preservation of our peace with God than we do. Yet I say that even this consideration in him who is otherwise off from his watch and does not make it his work to follow the other rules insisted on, it will not preserve him. Suppose the peace cared for and proposed to safeguard the soul be true and good, yet when all is laid up in this one bottom, when the hour of temptation comes, so many reliefs will be tendered against this consideration as will make it useless. This evil is small. It is questionable. It may be I may keep my peace, notwithstanding. Others of the people of God have fallen and yet kept or recovered their peace. If it's lost for a season, it may be obtained again. Fourthly, but yet they have another consideration also, and that is the vileness of sinning against God. How shall I do the thing and sin against God, the God of their mercies, of their salvation? How shall they wound Jesus Christ who died for them? This surely cannot but preserve them. I answer, First, we see every day this consideration failing also. There is no child of God that is overcome with temptation, but overcomes this consideration. It is not then a sure and infallible defense. Secondly, this consideration is twofold. Either it expresses the thoughts of the soul with particular reference to the temptation contended with, and then it will not preserve it, or it expresses the universal habitual frame of heart that is in us. Upon all accounts, and then it fails, and with what I shall tender it, the universal medicine and remedy in this case in the process of this discourse. So that's of temptation. I'm getting to the application, but these things are always helpful. From a treatise on indwelling sin by John Owen. Men little consider what a dangerous companion is always at home with them. When they are in company, when alone, by night or by day, all is the same sin as with them. There is a living coal continually in their houses that, if not looked to, will set them on fire, and it might consume them. Oh, the woeful security of poor souls. How little do most men think of this inbred enemy that is never away from home. How little, for the most part, does the watchfulness of any professors answer the danger of their state and condition. Consider the power of temptation, partly from what was showed before, from the effects and fruits of it in the saints of old, partly from such other effects in general as we find it ascribed to as one, it will darken the mind that a man shall not be able to make a right judgment of things, so as he did before he entered into it. As in the men of the world, the God of this world blinds their minds that they should not see the glory of Christ and the gospel, and hoard them in wine and new wine, take away their hearts, Hosea 4, 11. So it is in the nature of every temptation, more or less, to take away the heart, or to darken the understanding of the person tempted in retreats where we cannot pursue it. The soul may persuade itself all is well, when sin may be safe in the hidden darkness of the mind, which it is impossible that he should look into. For whatever makes something able to be seen is light. The soul may suppose a will of sinning is utterly taken away, when yet there is an unsearchable reserve for a more suitable object, a more vigorous temptation than at present it is tried with. Has a man had a contest with any lust and a blessed victory over it by the Holy Ghost? As to that present trial, when he thinks it is utterly expelled, he ere long finds that it was but retired out of sight. It can lie so close in the mind's darkness and the will's indisposition and in disorder and carnality of the affections that know can discover it. The best of our wisdom is but to watch its first appearances, to catch its first under earth heavings and workings, and to set ourselves in opposition to them. First, never let us reckon that our work in contending against sin and crucifying, mortifying, and subduing it is at an end. The place of its habitation is unsearchable. When we may think that we have thoroughly won the field, there is still some reserve remaining that we did not see, that we did not know. Many conquerors have been ruined by their carelessness after a victory. In the same way, many have been spiritually wounded after great successes against this enemy. David was so. 
his great surprise and a sin, was after a long profession, many experiences of God and watchful, keeping himself from his iniquity. And the last thing I want to read from the treatise on indwelling sin, that to me is just so powerful. Indwelling sin's persistence, it just keeps persisting. It keeps being urgent. It wants to be satisfied. It is a war that we have to fight. And as we discuss in the mortification of sin, you have to deal with its aims and deal with the strength of it by building up those spiritual meditations and the reading of the word fellowship prayer and so on that will weaken the contrary principle the old man that was my commentary on what one was saying enemies in war are restless pressing and persistent so is the law of sin does it set upon the soul cast off its motions and it returns again rebuke them by the power of grace they withdraw for a while and return again set before them the cross of christ they do with those that came to take him at the sight of him john 18 they went backwards and fell to the ground but they arose again and laid hands on him he's talking about the power of indwelling sin sin gives place for a season but returns and presses on the soul again remind us warring lust of the love of god in christ though it be stricken yet it does not surrender prevent Present the fires of hell to it. It rushes into the midst of those flames. Reproach it with folly and madness. It knows no shame, but presses on still. Let the thoughts of the mind strive to fly from it. It follows as on the wings of the wind. By this persistence in dwelling sin wearies and wears out the soul. And if the great remedy does not come timely it prevails to a conquest there is nothing more marvelous he's marveling at it is that's how they use the word then nothing more to be marveled at nor dreadful in the working of sin than this persistence it doesn't want to stop now this is where i want to put the emphasis closing and that is though these books like tim chelly's randy alcorn and others have a very good place. The thing that you have to understand that is scary at first, but if properly understood and you aim at practicing the things is a means to the end. And that is that the only evidence that we have that we are in fact Christians is that we are continually warring against that which wars in our members. Not just Romans seven fourteen to 25, but Galatians five sixteen and 17. For the spirit lusts against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit, so you cannot do the things that you would. In volume six of Thomas Goodwin's works, Goodwin lived from 1600 to 1680, and he's doing a comparison of 2 Peter 1, verse 3 and 4, and 2 Peter 2, verse 20 and 21. And I'm just going to read some of this, and you'll see why this is important. Let me read these verses. Now, this is talking about a believer, a believer, and he's going to be contrasted with a temporary believer. According as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue, and which are given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, compare the hypocrite, the temporary believer, the one who isn't really using these means toward this end, to persevere to the end, it still says of them, for if after they, the hypocrite, the false believer, escape the pollutions of the world, both of them escape the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of Christ. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again and entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning, for it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to, excuse me, to depart from it. So I actually printed out a few of the pages of this book, and this is the point that I want to make. I don't want to have to read a real lot of this, but one of the most frightening things that I've ever studied, and there is no 
better treatment of this and, and Thomas Goodwin's work on the Holy Spirit and regeneration is you got two people, both have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of Christ. And how did they do it? They both did it by the Holy Spirit. But in the case of the temporary believer, the Holy Spirit just carries him so far, but never actually changes his nature, never changes what we call the dis- governing disposition, the steering wheel of the soul. His affections aren't changed, his inclination isn't actually changed, and he is still in spiritual darkness. But what a person has to take from this is if he is in a continual state of declension and is continually as a life practice giving in to these sins, well, the Holy Spirit could abandon him. I mean, that can happen. But minimally, he gives evidence that he has no change in the governing disposition and that because God did not begin a good work in him. He will not perfect it. But where this should be fearful is to those who are continually in a state of declension, backsliding, especially allowing themselves in the practice of this. And not that they fall once or twice, but they allow themselves in the practice of it. And in this treatment, he shows how far the Holy Spirit can work upon the natural man and what are called the common influences of the Spirit. The common influences experienced by the unregenerate and the regenerate. But the effectual working of the Spirit begins a good work in him and perfects it until the day of Christ Jesus. But the description that he gives can be terrifying of how far a person can go show that they were just temporary believers. So then he talks about the usefulness of this doctrine that the Holy Spirit also works on temporary believers. Conviction, somewhat enlightening the eyes of the understanding, somewhat working upon the will, though the work that the Holy Spirit does in his common influences is only to convict. There is no holy affection to the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit is leading them on into the paths of righteousness. Observation, the doctrine and knowledge that there is only a temporary work in many professors is useful to sincere Christians for many holy ends. Peter declares it to those he wrote to, 2 Peter 2 verse 20 to 22, if or after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and are again entangled therein. So why, why is this a really really helpful foundation for us to begin to put to death this particular sin and the deeds of the body. For one, it should scare us that if we only leave off here, we come so far, but there's no real, real crying from the heart of a father. Lord, according to David and Betty and I are studying Psalm 119 right now. There's uh, some guys done some YouTube videos and what I've seen I've been very impressed with. But the prayer of Psalm 119 should be the continual prayer of a Christian, even though it's in the book of Psalms, it's Christian experience. Enlarge my heart that I would walk in the way of your commandments. Psalm 32, lead me in the past. Lead me, O Lord. Do not leave me to myself. Assist me, Lord. Keep me in the path of keeping your commandments. The Holy Spirit stirs up within us a desire to walk in God's commandments and anything that is hindering us, the Holy Spirit in a believer groans. It's aware of this other principle within it. It's aware that the flesh lusts against the Spirit so that we cannot do the things that we would. Not that we cannot ever do the things that we would, but not as we would. Because we have this new nature within us that can never be satisfied until it is being conformed to the image of His Son. But this foundation of what God is doing in the covenant and this new nature that strives after that which pleases God. That has to be at the evangelical foundation of all of our putting to death the deeds of the body, fleeing temptation, running the race that is set before us, and warring comes from this new evangelical grace. I will write my law in their minds and in their hearts, and they shall not depart from me. And 
If you're counseling somebody and you wrote a book and you're trying to help them with pornography and so on, the one thing you have to press upon him is if, if as a practice and continually you are given into this sin, remember I said these are means to an end. It isn't cause and effect. It isn't because I'm mortifying my desire for pornography. Now I'm going to be accepted with God. But these are the means that God has given to the end of eternal life. It's perseverance, it's sanctification, it isn't justification. But the thing that I don't know that is emphasized in some of these books enough is that you need to be afraid. If you're continually given into pornography, you need to be afraid that at the bottom you're building on the sand. The reason that you give in as a practice is because there is no new nature in you, no crying out to God for help. Lord, turn away mine eyes from these things. Turn my eyes toward you. Assist me. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. But I really believe when you're giving counsel to people that are continually giving into this sin, we just always assume that that person is just in a bad way spiritually, and he may be. But as I said when I quoted Jonathan Edwards on the religious affections more than once, a person who is given in to these things as a practice, as a habit, continually cannot properly examine himself to see whether he is in the faith because he's in such darkness he can't properly assess his present condition. So Edwards says before you are going to be able to apply any of the signs of regeneration, you have to come out of that sorry state you are in, Achan must be slain, and you must deal with these things, and as you start to come back to the life of perseverance that you were inevitably made for because the Holy Spirit has taken up his abode within you, that's what's really going to assist you to go on. And I don't know that there is a proper warning to some people that because we've made justification and regeneration synonymous, and we talk about it is absolutely a fruit of being born again, that you will put away the deeds of the body that hinder you from having fellowship with God. You can never be at peace to stay there. And I will not give you a false hope if you're practicing these things, if you're continually given in to them, that you've ever been born again, because I can't. There's no fruit. You may be, and a Christian can get into that sorry of a condition that he can neither judge himself, and far less could somebody that's just looking on say, yeah, I know, brother, fall into these things, but at bottom, you're a Christian. You just need to be warned. You need to have these motives put before you why this is preferable. No, you need to be afraid. You need to honestly be afraid that the Holy Spirit will work up to a point on a temporary believer, and he will quit these things out of conviction. For a while, he will pray out of fear for a while, and then when he believes he has had a new hope, he may continue for a while. But because at bottom, the carnal mind is still at enmity against God, Romans 8, 7. There is no spiritual man, Romans 8, 6. He can't walk after the Spirit. He doesn't have the Spirit. So until you see the fruits of walking in the Spirit, you just are not going to have assurance. And so you do want to put these things to death. You do want to do it, though, from this evangelical motive with the hope that he that has begun a good work in you. And the way that you tell is you can never be satisfied if you're continually given into sin. Towards the practice of it, you can never be satisfied to stay there if you're a Christian. You cry out to God, Lord, I don't have assurance. I feel so distant and the problem is on my side. With a hypocrite, they'll just say, well... If you confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And I had done this comparison of John Owen on the forgiveness of sin and Dane Ortland, who wrote Gentle and Lowly. And what was interesting, I don't know what happened this week, but all of a sudden I was having, you know, 100, 150 more people listen to this. But what was the big thing that was the takeaway comparing John Owen to Dane Ortland? Not just joy that you have been forgiven, but the self loathing, 2 Corinthians. What zeal, what vehemence of desire, and you're just 
broken. Not just that you're forgiven. You are thankful for that. But a person who has that Holy Spirit, even if you were forgiven, cannot possibly just stay there. He says, Lord, I thank you for your forgiveness, but I want this thing that keeps dragging me down and causing me to sin against you. Lord, I want to deal with it. And Dane Ortland didn't have enough of that. You say, well, sure. Well, since I have his work in Kindle format, I just did a search as I could do on my computer of sorrow, broken, self-condemnation. So those words aren't even in that book. But you read John Owen and you just see the emphasis that he that has truly been forgiven doesn't want to just stay there with the joy of being forgiven. He's never going to be joyful until he starts seeing himself the fruit of being conformed to the image of his son. And I think that um, I'll open it up for questions while I wet the whistle. You'll know because you're using his means. And then you're crying out to God to bless it. If you're doing it in your own strength, what will happen is you'll do it by fear, uh, shame, or whatever. But if you're doing it by the Holy Spirit, the two things go together. There will be the mourning for the sin and then the comfort that will follow. So you just look at those things which are the evangelical graces of repentance and you know you're finding those in yourself. And you, the very fact that you're crying out to God in prayer, those are the marks that you're not doing this in your own strength. And remember, I always keep emphasizing that these are the means to the end. A person who secretly is doing this by his own strength, secretly, he may not even know that he is doing this. He's secretly doing these things because he's afraid of God's frown and he wants his smile. Not that he wants to be conformed to the image of his son and he cries out to God because he sees that warning in his members which keeps him from that so wretched man that I am. Romans 7 verse 24, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And so you know you're doing it by the Spirit. Like when you read in Psalm 32, Psalm 51, the repentant Psalms of David, you read in there and you say, that's the language of what I feel. And when I kept silent, my bones waxed old. You know, the language is part of Psalm 22, though. Jesus was never mourning for sin. Yet David, speaking of what he felt like he was going through, the agony was something that was fulfilled in crucifixion, though he wasn't crucified. It's the agony of dealing with his remaining sin. Well, because you're more afraid of just incurring God's frown. You're, You're carrying on your work of mortification and so on out of a spirit of bondage and fear. Right. The way that that you will know is false repentance doesn't have hope in it. True repentance always has hope that the promises will be fulfilled. And without hope, we can't even live the Christian life. And the means that God has given us are going to result in the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. But certainly all true repentance has hope within it. That's the difference of Catholic penance or whatever. There's no hope because you don't know how much you have to do to know if you've crossed a line to where you're now no longer under God's frown. Right, yeah. You were going to say something, brother? I'm not sure if I understand you were talking about walking into temptation or falling into temptation. Uh, When does that, does that is that like the disposition of my heart and my desires, or is that an action that I'm taking? Usually, like in Galatians, where it says, uh, if a man fall in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore them. It doesn't have so much of the element of presumption in it. But when a person is entangled in his affections and during the temptation, it overcomes his strength to war against it. And then you actually fall into sin after. You may not even commit the physical act, but what I'm saying is you know your affections are entangled and you know, man, this is like a fire. I'm swallowed up so, in it. So you're in sin, actually in sin at that point because, you're, because you have the desire in your heart 
You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Even if you don't do it. Yeah. But if you ask for a scientific definition of where exactly that line is, what we want instead of defining that is to say, how can I get away as far away from that line as possible? Well, this, but the thing is, what really, really hit me here was as I was reading Goodwin this morning. I didn't even know I'd use Goodwin in this, but I've narrated this before. I've known about his work on the temporary believer going almost back 40 years uh, because uh, the only two volumes that Thomas Goodwin that the Man of Truth published was volume 8 and volume 6 and volume 6 is Holy Spirit and Regeneration and volume 8 is Acts, adjust, acts and Objects of Justifying Faith and by the way the end of that is pretty comforting uh, had a, a dear dear friend in Montana really, really struggling to get assurance of salvation. And he read the end of the Acts and Objects of Justifying Faith by Goodwin and how he applied it. And it was very, very comforting. He said it was one of the one or two things that really, really helped him out when he just could not get assurance. And, you know, sometimes it's because he's worried too much about the doctrine of election. Maybe I'm not one of the elect, or I don't see these fruits in me, and so on. And so Goodwin is very, very helpful on some of his applications on justifying faith. So I, I know we're not supposed to try to overcome these temptations or these sin in our own flesh, but if, you, if you're... If, if, um, um, Throughout your day, you know at what points you could be possibly tempted at the moment. Sure. Would would it be safe to say that that's when? It's certainly he's he's certainly saying don't use these means, don't flee youthful lust, don't go into the house where you're going to be tempted. Right. But he's saying is if you think that you could put your hope in avoiding these things. Not necessarily, because sometimes the inclinations and affections are already so worked upon by the temptation that just fleeing doesn't mean that you're not carrying the thoughts with you. And so you'll realize more and more, no matter how much I try to order my thoughts here, I absolutely need the Holy Spirit to drive my thoughts. What's really been enlightening to me as I've been reading Owen in the last uh, couple of years is the emphasis, especially on his work to grace and do to be in spiritually minded, volume seven, is the emphasis that he puts upon watching what's going on in your thoughts. We think that, well, because I'm thinking of these things and they aren't out and out sin, therefore they're innocent things. But if they continue to divert us from being spiritually minded, they're not helpful thoughts. And all thoughts should be brought into obedience to the law of crisis at uh, 2 Corinthians 9 or whatever. I bring every thought captive. Is it 2 Corinthians 9, 4 or 1 Corinthians? Anyway, but, but the emphasis, and good one too, but the emphasis Owen puts on because you have a multitude of thoughts all the time is holding yourself accountable for them, praying that God would help you in that. And I just find it amazing. I could be narrating some of the most spiritual stuff and not sinful thoughts necessarily come to my mind, but thoughts to divert me from what I am doing. Like even things like, Oh, I hope this this is going to go over good. I'm really putting myself into this. And you imagine people listening to your stuff. Your mind is so capable of running in so many directions. And Owen really says, if you want to gain and be spiritually minded, you have to watch what's going on in the minds and then continually bring them in subjection to Christ. You know, at certain points in your life and the things that, you, that are a necessity in your life that are, are also things that are times when you're particularly vulnerable, vulnerable yeah, yeah. sinful thoughts or whatever lust. Yeah. Um, pr- prayer and crying out to God. Well, and of course, accountability is really, really important. And I will remind you of something that Pastor Waldron said at the funeral of his dad. And his dad was a deacon in Grand Rapids. And see, 
he was uh, my deacon too. I attended there a number of years, but they were, they'd moved into a Mormon church that they had bought out, and there was going to be an office for Pastor Sam, and Tex, as the deacon, walked by the door and he said, Sam, this isn't going to work. That window has to be a lot bigger. We have to be able to look in there and check on you. You know, because pastors have to counsel maybe people of uh, the opposite sex. In Grand Rapids, I can assure you, if it was a pastor and it was a lady, that door was wide open and people were informed before the counseling session, come by and check on me here. I know Pastor Merrick was diligent about the whole thing. He really was an example to me that way. There was a lady who had come from Montana. She may have been 18, 19, you know, and a nice looking lady too. And she came out, she was, she needed to get away and so on. And I wasn't even married. And we would go to these singles gatherings on Saturday night, play volleyball or whatever. And because this lady was staying with Americans, because that's the only family she really knew out here. Pastor Mary called me on the phone and said, Tom, would you be willing to ride with me to the church because this lady's going to be uh, riding with me? They were they were really, really careful that way. And those are good things. And all Owen was saying is don't put your hope in them that because you're doing these things, in a moment of the entangled affections, you still can fall into the temptation if you're dependent on those things and not walking very, very close, crying out to God, Lord, I cannot trust myself for a moment here. I need your help. Anyway, because uh, you're probably driving all the way home, I want to be gracious. Adam, I can't... It's already dark. No, I can't thank you enough that you... I've always wanted you in one of my classes, and yeah, you weren't even expecting it, so... No, no. Yeah, I forgot. Is it... It's each... uh... Uh, uh, I'm going to ask around and see what might be working because, you know, it's really, really tough. I, if I get five people here, it's a crowd. And brother, I'm not naive. I know the stuff that I'm teaching here needs to be heard at adult Sunday school level. That door isn't opening up, and that's why I record it, because people will listen to it sure. online. But right. uh, I said to Pastor Wilson, him and his wife were at the house, and I said, now that I got your attention, brother, there really has to be a second Sunday school. And we need to be talking about Christian experience. So I brought it up before, and he says, yeah, we thought about having a class where we were teaching some of the new people the catechism and so on. And I said, that's not really what I'm talking about. All that's... It's the foundation of this. But there are people in this congregation who need who need us to open up about what I'm telling you about, and that is the Christian life lived in evangelical obedience. And when they got questions, it, it puzzles them. That's why it's so good we have these question and answer things. I want to hear what the questions are, and we want to make sure that those questions are answered. And I'm telling you, Adam, I mourn inside. This is so obvious, and we need to pray that it opens up there is no reason since this room as far as i know right now is not being used melissa moved upstairs this room is open let me take 10 or 15 20 people that want to go through a book like the grace and duty being spiritually minded or pilgrim's progress at a sunday school level and open up like i want to open up about these things brother i've been studying this stuff too long and i'm starting to get the basic conviction and gist of what owen and others are aiming at people need help along these lines and they need to understand you live the christian life as a means to an end not trying to justify yourself before god but you got basic questions like how do i know if this is a while of the devil or what do i do if many a time i counsel people that feared he had committed the unpardonable sin which is always a delusion